This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast where all the cool kids go to smoke behind the bleachers. We're here talking today with Jonathan Joss. This is Mark Linton-Meyer wearing pants. This is Erica Spires, currently in Sag Harbor and also currently wearing pants. Hi, this is Brian Hurt, and I got something on below the equator. Oh. Hi, I'm Jonathan Joss, and okay, I'm wearing pants. Why would one feel the need to specify that in a broadcasted situation, one might not be wearing pants? Jonathan, I just got this from a video where you were talking about this very issue, so I'll let you articulate it. The whole basis on that is the majority of my film career, I haven't worn pants. I'll end up wearing, you know, leggings or I'll wear a breech cloth. So anytime I get a chance to wear pants, it's a huge, I mean, for native actors and for natives in general, we really don't exist in present day America. We are still back in the 18th century. They expect to see, you know, feathers in our head and, and us not wearing pants. It's a win for me anytime I get to do something and I'm told I'm going to wear pants. Even before I even know I'm getting paid. Because I get paid more not wearing pants. He does have nice legs and nice feet. So. Yes, I have two of them. Yeah. Very nice. Nice to have two. And if I don't wear pants, it costs more money. Really? Yes. Well, I just saw your clip this morning in True Grit toward the beginning where it looked like you were wearing pants. But they made a whole joke out of how among the three people that were being hung, you were the one that didn't get to have any last words. That they just put the hood over your head after letting two other people ramble. I did have a couple last words. I just want to say that I was well hung in that film. If you notice, the other two white guys were not hung very well. They were allowed to speak, but when I was hung, they hung me well. And if Mark had said hanged like a normal person, we wouldn't have had that terrible joke. So thanks, Mark. Google Jonathan Joss gets beat up by punks. It's very funny. Is that from your appearance in the Facts of Life? Yes. The line in that was, before I am hung, I would like to say to you that I find myself... He had a nice little speech. And the Coen brothers came up to me and were like, listen, man, we kind of want to make this funny. And I agreed. I said, you know what? Native people don't ever get a last word. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so if you get a chance, that's what I look like going into the audition for uh, True Grit. I played the condemned Indian, of course. I fell down a couple of times on the way home from my house from a local hangout and kind of ran into a little gang of youngsters. That's what I looked like when I showed up for the audition, which was great because after I landed the part, the Cohen brothers asked me, what the hell happened to you? You came in here and you looked like you were condemned. Yep, I was condemned. But I did wear pants that did cut my scene. But again, atrocities that have happened to Native people, you can't help but to laugh at it. I mean, one of the best lines in Andy Get Your Gun right now for me is I just say, you stole it. How how did we ever get this land from you guys? You stole it. Now, let's talk a little bit about this. So just a little intro. I'm lucky enough right now to be out in Sag Harbor with Jonathan Joss and many other wonderful actors out here. And we're doing a performance of Annie Get Your Gun for the next month. Many moons. For many moons. This is a really interesting production. The director has actually taken three or four different versions of the script, and she's tried to turn it into something that's updated for today. And some of the people in a talkback the other day were asking, like, so what did you guys do differently with this script? I didn't realize. I mean, I'm not surprised that that's a new line, but if you want to tell them what happens in that scene. Yeah, they're just setting up Sitting Bull for a good laugh, and there's references to casino business. There's references to Native people not putting money into show business, which actually they don't. 
when it comes to, you know, the casino monies. And then basically, you know, they just ask, how did we ever get this land from the native people? And I, I kind of reply, you stole it. Again, there's humor and there's reality, but if in today's society, with all the atrocities happening on planet Earth right now, if we can just somehow smile at the end of the day, I think we'll get to see another day, I hope. At least I'm hoping so. Yeah. Was it obvious that this musical was salvageable? Because I know that others just aren't. Thoroughly Modern Millie has been pulled here and there, just as being, well, it's out of date and it's really tone deaf and maybe the best thing to do is just to not do it anymore. It's great that this is still something that can be dumb, but at what point do you cut bait on something like this? It's still going on. It's still, I think, a work in progress. You know, I'm happy with the product, but I think, you know, like anything or any actor or, or any baker, I think we're capable of making a better cookie. As far as cutting bait and running, that's not something I do. So I'd like for it to get its legs for as long as it can. I think there is a message in this show. And I think there is a way. I mean, we can't censor all great work. It may not even be right for us to change it. But I think we have a responsibility, not to ourselves, but to the next generation, to inform them of the world that used to be as we prepare them for the world that it may become. Mm -hmm. My nephew's high school, he actually starred just last year or the year before in a version of Thoroughly Modern Millie. That is kind of like watching the first season of Mad Men, where part of the appeal is blanching at like, oh, wow, that's really out of date. By presenting it in the way in its original form, it's almost a commentary on it rather than a perpetuation of it. True. I think in this case, a lot of us Northeastern liberals like to think ourselves as very woke. We're not when it comes to a lot of things. We all understand that the Native Americans have suffered terribly and we feel badly about that. But like, what does that actually mean? And how do we properly recognize and respect the character of Sitting Bull? We are lucky enough to have Jonathan with us. And I'm sure through the ages, this role has not always been played by somebody who it should have been played by. What does that mean representation-wise? Not in very many days, really, but you've taught us a lot about what to pay attention to and what this character was like and how it's not the way it's portrayed in the books because the books are written by white people oftentimes. So the one thing I thought was really interesting is, can you talk about the line you got changed in the song? Oh, yeah. It's really great. Um, There was just the S word for native slur word. You know, it applies supposedly to a female native person. But when you look at the Iroquois Nation, the, you know, the Federation, and you look at the languages, you will discover that the word is actually means vagina. You'll hear people say, no, 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 you know, they use the S word to describe a female native individual. But at that time period, why would they take a word that was positive for people that they were killing? Then when you look how it breaks down, I mean, you look at Webster's Dictionary, the first definition is negative. And if you go down a little bit further, there's other ways of looking at the word. But in all, it is not a good word. And with our wonderful director and the producers, we were able to take this word out of one of the songs and references to savages and things of that nature in the script. People will know the changes have been made. And I think even more so, that will open up for discussion. Uh, Like you said, when do we cut bait and run? I sat here and thought about it. I guess we cut bait and run when no one else can learn anything from it. To begin with, if you do not see this cast, this family of people in this production, you're doing yourself an injustice. We gave birth to something that people will learn from. Cut bait and run? Hell no. We're loading up that hook with some good bait, and we're going to cause some conversation. Erica, what role are you playing in this? 
technically, I am in the ensemble, but it's such an interesting cast for a musical of this time period. I think it's pretty small. And we're all featured in certain ways. So in this particular one, they wanted to do more of an actor-musician show. And since I play the violin, I start in the very beginning when Jonathan first walks on stage as Sitting Bull. And we have like all this show business stuff going on. And then Jonathan walks on stage and I come on with a violin and play a song that's been cut from the show, but like in a different form. The violin is almost like the spirit of the show or the spirit of Annie Oakley and at certain times when Annie's singing, the violin comes out and shows a different part of maybe what she's thinking. At least that's the way I interpret it, and that's kind of how our director said. She kept adding me into more things the more that we staged it. So I am in the ensemble, and I do appear, like, and I sing and dance a little bit, but I also, I bit? think, I, well, I guess, I guess quite a bit. It's like, what part do you play? Everything. She's everything. You'll see her in <laughs> one part of- doing this. You'll see her in, I thought they were twins. You know, stage left, there she is. <laughs> stage right, she's there. I'm like, whoa. You play the soul of the musical, but that's all. That's it. Yeah. yeah oh, no I think the soul of the musical. She's got soul. Well, music is so important for that, right? I think that's the way people love musicals. There is a soulfulness that comes from the music. In fact, I was reading in an interview of yours where you were talking about music and how that brought about some yeah. changes, major, major changes, changes to your character changes. on King of the Hill. Major changes, yes. For the fans out there and in the different little forums where they go, I hate John Redcorn. You know, he's a pig for having that relationship with Nancy. I was like, hey, man, a white person wrote the script. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'm not kidding. But anyway, no. When we kind of got bored with that joke of him having the affair with Nancy, and when I finally kind of stood my ground and asked for them to change it, I pitched him different ideas. And one of the ideas I pitched him was John Redcorn and Big Mountain Fudge Cake. If you're familiar with the show, Stuart Anderson, oh, Stuart Anderson's. Stuart Anderson's is the favorite restaurant of Hank Hill. And at Stuart Anderson's, their signature dessert is called Big Mountain Fudge Cake. So I kind of put one and one together and got three for the reason that I knew if they had license to stay Stuart Anderson, oh, Stuart Anderson, they would have the right maybe to apply something else. So when I named the band Big Mountain Fudge Cake, it was accepted hands down because of that gambled with his future. Nancy and them kind of broke off and, you know, he became an entrepreneur, a band leader and, you know, a folk singer. So yeah, music is very soulful. It communicates on a different level, I think. So you're giving some examples here that are making explicit a topic that we're going to try to get into with your varying experiences in these different media that it sounds like in a musical, you're working really intently with these people. You're refining things. It seems like in this particular musical, anyway, they're open to revising the script, revising the choreography. You know, there's all these places where you can have input. Whereas a TV show was a completely different set of politics. And of course, the films that you had parts big or small in, you're kind of restricted to making your part sympathetic or negotiating with the directors, writers over whatever sections you're in. Can you kind of launch us on that voyage? Number one, of course, it's two different animals, but both animals have fangs. Film, you tend to think, well, we can do things over and over again, and you kind of leave a scene thinking, I didn't hit my stride, I didn't hit where I was. It's very internal. You don't really work with a lot of people a lot of times. Sometimes you do a turnaround, there's no one there. Get very bored with that. You don't feel tested as an artist. I mean, I hadn't stepped on stage in nearly 20 years, and I get here with this group of people. I mean... At the end of a film, you know, we caught lightning in a bottle, oh, blah, blah, blah. Hey, man, these guys do it every night, twice on Wednesday, twice on Sunday. I mean, they catch that lightning in a bottle every night. Plus, you get to know your person. I mean, you're lucky if you get to have lunch with a guy you may have a scene with that's important, you know, to your character and important to the storytelling. Here, we cook together, we live together. On camera, as soon as that director says action, you feel lonely, man. 
you feel vulnerable. It's you and this, you know, million dollar piece of equipment that decides your fate. An actor once told me is that it's not you against the camera. Take your time with it. It's a friend. But you know what? Mm. I know what a friend is. A friend is working with a family and a cast like this, where you get to grow with that individual. You get to be part of the storytelling. We're very constricted, even though, you know, in a film, you got that little box. The same thing here. I mean, our choreographer, our, our director, we have places to be on certain points at certain times. I mean, I realize how important is that, but uh, TV and film, you become very lazy. I mean, there was a beat in a song where I was not moving at the right time. For me, I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, actor, I'm moving, you know, as the spirit takes me. That's not right. Boss told me when to move. That's when I need to respect that. Because if not, you're throwing everyone else off. And even a little bump hesitation, it's like a fast break move. You're moving fast. You need to know where that ball is going to be. And that player needs to be there when it happens. And it needs to happen effortlessly. Two different animals. Both have fangs. So much enjoy what I'm doing. You couldn't imagine doing The Godfather with a different cast. I could not imagine doing this play, this musical, with a different cast. I mean, this is going to be embedded in my spirit, in my soul, until I take my last breath. And hopefully more people will see this cast. This is definitely one of the hardest things I've ever done. But if I come in feeling a little sluggish, or if I feel in thinking whatever, the world's got me down, people are dying for no reason, you know, this family brings you up because we are storytellers. No matter what's going on out in the world, it's our responsibility to share a story with the audience, not because they pay for the ticket, but because they deserve to be told a good story by a good family. Well, it's unfortunate. I had heard that they were actually going to remake The Godfather and that you were up for the Brando role, but you're saying you don't want to see that with a different cast. No, you know what? He turned down an award for us on behalf of Martin Brando. I would like to turn down the job. <laughs> Stop that project in its tracks. Yes, I will turn that Oscar down in, in honor of the man himself. Now, Jonathan, do you feel any loss of control doing a movie knowing that you're doing a whole bunch of takes and ultimately it's up to the editor to decide which to use or kind of piece together like the one shot and then the two shot and the you don't know which is the one that's going to be used and maybe not always the one you would have thought or liked. And once it's done, it's done. It's not like in a play, I guess... You have another shot at it the next night. You can always be better. You are 100% correct. I mean, you're completely out of control. I mean, I've done stuff where I think, hey, that was a great scene. And then later on, you see it. I'm like, what the hell? I look fat in that one. Why did I use that one? <laughs> but you're so right. Each night we get another shot. But there is a parameter there. There is a control there. I mean, you can't change the variables themselves. You might be able to change it on paper, on how it's written. But you can't change variables and it throws everyone else off. You can't go off half-cocked and say, well, I'm going to do a completely different line read here because, you know, the director necessarily hasn't approved it. I mean, she saw one thing in rehearsal. I like trying new things. I was trying something new that I realized wasn't working, and I pulled it out last night, and I got the note. Oh, by the way, we're going to give you a note, but you pulled it out. The old Jonathan would have said, then why the fuck are you giving me the note then? Don't tell me when I don't do something. Tell me when I'm doing it, not after I've taken it out. But that wasn't the old Jonathan. But anyway, the point was, thank you very much. I appreciate your notes because there is a responsibility there to the director and to the cast. And sometimes I forget that because film and TV is dog eat dog. Because we don't have control of what takes they're going to take, it's even more important to the actor to make sure that we get a take that really has somewhat of what we want in the delivery. 
But then again, you know, we do have parameters here. We do have a responsibility. All those things that I bitch and gripe at about film and TV, like not having someone there or someone not listening to you. I mean, so much about acting is not acting. It's about reacting. It's about listening. And film and TV, you don't do that. You're very lonely. You know, I had a friend who I was speaking to recently who was a stand-in for a famous actor. I won't say who. This girl said she did almost all of the scenes where this other actor, where her face wasn't. Like, so, you know, they'd already shot the famous person scenes, right? And then when they were doing the same scene with the other perspective of the other actor, she didn't want to be there. So my friend was a stand-in, and she was the one acting opposite these people, which is just, to me, insane, because that's a completely different person. And she did her best to do what she thought this actor would do. And she was actually floored by it, too. She's like, you know, I know that's happened sometimes, but I don't know if the actor was having a bad couple months or if just got too big for her britches and decided she didn't have to do those things. I mean, it's hot, it's cold. I've got to get back to my trailer. The turnarounds, you very seldom have that person on. Magnificent Seven, a couple of my scenes could have been shot very easily. They could have just set the camera, shoot me, shoot me, shoot me. But Mr. Sarsgaard, Mr. Bogue, requested that he do his lines. I react to each one of those lines because we did have a play there. And it was important for when you had his turnarounds, that my reactions were exactly to what he was saying. That doesn't make me a better actor. It makes him a better actor because then he's reacting. So a lot of times when these actors don't want to be there for that turnaround, you're going to discover, I have, that when you're doing your scene, you're not reacting to the reality that was given to you before. But again, it's our responsibility to go into our file chamber in our head, pull that file out, and not have that person there. King of the Hill was great for the reason that when we did our voiceover, it was requested that all the actors be there. Even though it's a voiceover, when you did an opposite line, that person was there. And we weren't necessarily looking at them because the way they set the mics up, but the person is in that room. Reaction is so, so important. And you'll be surprised the actors that don't want to give you that time. I prefer when I work, I usually have someone with me that if that person's not there, they'll play opposite me. That way I can get somewhat of the essence of what's going on. That's insane to me. And I think you're right. Obviously, this happens a lot. But as a person who's almost solely done stage acting, I get upset when somebody's looking at me, but they're not really looking at me. And they're like looking through my head or they're looking to their left of me. And I'm like, look at me and give me a reaction. I'm here. I'm with you. So I can't imagine just not having that person at all. Long-term relationships. Oh, wait a minute. What were we talking about? (laughs) D. Bradley Baker, when we talked to him, was saying, yeah, on a Fox sitcom, and he was talking about the Seth MacFarlane ones that he's on, that it was the live table read in a room and recording all the voices together. He said, yeah, when you're on a Fox sitcom, but I did not realize it actually goes back to that point. It's important. The fans deserve it. Yeah, I agree. You know, Jonathan, I was talking to my mother this morning, and she always knows about everybody who I'm doing shows with. She researches everybody. And she told me my 10-year-old nephew was very excited to find out you were working with me. Yeah. And Owen said, I love him. John Redcorn's my favorite character because he's Man. been watching. I think he's been watching it on. It's not on Cartoon Network, yes, right? Yes, it is. And, 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 you know, it's not Family Guy. It is probably 10-year-old approved. <laughs> yes, it is. But, yeah, he's like, I've been watching that show for years. I know. This that's how I That's how I get. I, I, I've had people say, I used to watch that show with my granddad. I'm like, whoa, uh, right on. All right. I have a question for yes. you, Jonathan. And this is. I was doing a little bit of research just on King of the Hill, refreshing myself on your greatest hits. And I came across a video on YouTube, that, and I'm sure we'll mean? get to this later on because we that have... Fat? Uh, 
They drew you so fat. The um, <laughs> Did I have pants on? We're going to be doing an episode on conspiracy theories, I think, at some point. And I came across a conspiracy theory that Dale knew that Nancy was cheating with Not John Redcorn and chose to ignore it because he uh, liked his lifestyle and he had seen what divorce had done to one of his friends. And I got to say, this was supported by no actual evidence. It was like, yeah, I think Dale really likes his life. And yeah, Dale would be stupid to not realize his son looks nothing like him. And like, this isn't evidence. But, you know, you were one of the players in this drama. So do you think that's a possibility? What's your take on this terrible theory? If you're going to go to the Arlen world, he feels that she was artificially inseminated in an episode. So... I don't think Dale knows. I think he's caught in his own world that if he were to know, I think his ability to comprehend it isn't there because what's most important to him is his son. Any relationship, whether it be mother, daughter, son, you name it, stray dog and man, it's that unconditional love, that love that you don't ask where you come from. There was a time where we would walk and see and where you come from was out of respect. Now it's a question. And I think Dale has that ability to see things as they are. Maybe that's a reason he's a conspiracy nut. But as far as relationship is concerned, it's not important where Joseph, he just knows that he's Joseph's dad. In the one scene where he gives him his last money out of his wallet, there was a close-up of Dale giving him that last $5. That's the Indian way, man. Why doesn't John just tell Dale about what's happening and break off the relationship? And because he knows that Dale is a good man, that he's deserving of a son, not a questionable son, but an actual son. Hmm. At the same time, there's a line where John Redcorn says, you know, Hank, you turned 40, Hank, you turned 40. Frustration because John's not happy where he's at. Why would he be happy? I mean, in order for someone to be a respectable or an honored father or an honored parent or even an honored friend, you have to be responsible for your own actions. And I don't think John Redcorn was responsible for his own actions. Therefore, how could he be responsible for the actions of someone that's youthful in the next generation? So I don't think Dale cares. I mean, he cares enough not to care. He's still a conspiracy nut. But you know what? As in stereotypes, some things touch reality a little bit. Were there like discussions among the cast, you know, about these kind of Obviously, you've had to sit with this for a long time. No, I wasn't prefaced any of those. I wasn't there for any of those discussions. The only thing I did was really pull hard for the relationship to be broken off. Oh, I was, really? Yeah. I was doing 10 episodes a season, I guess, and it went all the way down to one because there were certain things that I didn't want John Redcorn to do. And, you know, when you cause waves, I mean, and necessarily they did them. They saw the light behind what I was saying. I, I delivered a lot of things in darkness. But there is a tread of light when I try to deliver something. It's just a bad character flaw that I have. I mean, one episode, they wanted to say that John Redcorn had a psychiatrist. My psychiatrist believed that dreams are, and I wouldn't say that. I said, why would John Redcorn have a psychiatrist? Couldn't he say, my friend, the psychiatrist? Or is John Redcorn not smart enough? Or is it because he's an Indian that you don't think he knows someone of education? You know, someone that's graduated, someone that's a doctor, I shouldn't have said it that way. I should have just said, hey, it makes him look weaker. Small changes like that need to be made. And then finally, you know, from doing talks on different places and, and speaking to young Native people and the elders as well, 
had a little lady in Tuba City, uh, an elder, I should say a little lady, uh, an elder, come to me and say, that's not funny. Don't you know how we represent, how there are things that Native people need to rise above? And being a single family kind of household is one of our struggles. And I said, yes, I completely understand. And I went to Fox and asked him, could we please break that off? It's a money thing. In this industry, if you've got something that's funny, it's money. Each script has to have so many laughs. If there was a laugh that was up short, they could always rely on John Redcorn sneaking out the window. That got a laugh. You know, here, Nancy, I'll see you later. I mean, I got paid to grunt. I'm not very proud of that. But Fox was wonderful enough. Greg Daniels, Mike Judge, was able to see the light that I was trying to bring to them, even though I brought it in darkness. Um, very thankful for that. And uh, they broke off the relationship. He got his band. And not many people know this. Mr. John Trudell once made a comment to me, and I didn't think he knew who the hell I was. You know, I know who he was, who he is, still is. He said, you know, he said, a moment you captured, you know, in your cartoon is one that hasn't been captured before. It's where the white man apologizes to the native person. And it's the episode where they break it off. And Dale says, on behalf of my people, I would like to apologize for everything we've done to you. John says, you know, on behalf, I'd like to apologize for everything I've done to you. Two shows must come together. We must merge. And I think in that episode, you see the merging of two people that should be enemies. But what they have in common is the future. And that future is our younger generation. That future is Joseph and Bobby. Mm -hmm. I so much hope this show continues and goes into the future because I want people to see how the Hank Hill family evolved into the future. I mean, I couldn't imagine South Park going into the future 10 years. I couldn't imagine the Simpsons going in. I mean, they've done 20, 30 years. But for the Hill family, I'm really excited to see if this show comes back and how the youth will be represented. I really hope so. Let's give them our vote of confidence because I think it's something we really need right now. One thing I always liked about King of the Hill was growing up in Southern Missouri in the Bible Belt. I feel like I knew those people. And I feel like I knew those people not because they were just tropes of country people. It was because at the heart of them, there was something really beautiful and there was an innocence and there was a willingness to want to be better and learn. And, you know, they may have been stuck in certain circumstances and feel a certain way that we may consider conservative. And not to say that they became just better because they were liberal. I think they were already good people who just wanted to learn and they were products of their circumstances. But the episodes showed you that at the heart of them, they were just good yeah, people. They're, they're family. They're, they're family. And Mike's to- next show after that was called The Good Family. So I think there is something there with saying that they are, they dealt with things as a family, just like we have to deal with things as a nation, as a people, yeah, as humans. And we need to see that nuance in each other, I think, and not divide ourselves. Well, so if we could push forward to Parks and Rec a little bit, there's at yes. least a consciousness now among white people that we have to be respectful and we don't quite know what that means. <laughs> and so that the comedy is played very heavily on exactly that. Yes. And we don't know what that means. <laughs> right, right. Take it off. Now, does it white man? Well, to begin with, that's another wonderful creation by Greg Daniels, who is one of the co-creators of King of the Hill. Again, for him to create such a wonderful character as Ken, a member of the town, a member of his tribe, someone that's influential, someone that's needed, and more importantly, someone that wore pants. I mean, I wore some of the nicest pants. The last episode I did, I'm wearing this Ralph Lauren Western tuxedo. I mean, it fit to a T. It was so nice. And I had my assistant with me, Adrian Brown. 
I'm walking off the set and, and Adrian, Mr. Brown tells me, Hey man, he goes, uh, don't you need a change? I mean, I had my underwear, I had my belt and I had my boots, all the rest of my clothes I could keep. So I'm trying to sneak off the lot in this, you know, and all of a sudden I hear, Jonathan, you can't take that home. I'm like, damn it. Man, I almost got out of with a suit, man. I mean, man, I look good in a new suit. Parks and Rec, amazing. A lot of fun. He really saw the humor in himself. But at the same time, I mean, the one line I like, you know, Kenatota, he plays white people like a fiddle. Because I never understood what that line meant until I see these guys playing a fiddle. Wow. There's not that many strings, but man, can you make it do some fun stuff. And at the <laughs> same time, you got to protect it with all your heart. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Saw her take a nosedive with the fiddle, man. I did. I mean, she, I thought it was a stunt woman. Because I was waiting for like somebody else to stand up, you know, with a wig. In the play, they were pushing her and she took a spill and she just tucked this violin. I mean, wow. Yeah. I spilled forward off of this cart the other day. Like, all of a sudden, falling, I realized I had no arms to catch me because they had the violin in them. And I thought, what can I do now? All I could think is move the violin up. So like a baby, I tucked it up, and I ended up landing on the left side of my body. And the whole audience goes, <gasps> Yes, and I'm in the background going, score! I was like, fork down with seconds to go. She's on the goal line. She tucks it, and she, and they win! I mean, I was like, she says baby, I say football. <laughs> but your thought was to protect that and not yourself as you went down. Yes. 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 Yeah. You should see the dent she put in the floor, though. <laughs> Parks yeah. and Rhett, a great character. What a wonderful cast. Again, to be part of a Greg Daniels project. Again, family-oriented with these guys. Everyone's got your back. People were there to do the turnarounds with you. You know, if it was the fat Chris Pratt, he was there. And then when he became the skinny Chris Pratt muscular guy, he was still there for you. <laughs> Amy Poehler, who I think is like the Lucille Ball. I remember the first scene I had to play opposite her. I couldn't get the line out. I was shell-shocked because here she is, this great actor. And she looked at me and said, Jonathan, you got the part. You can relax. <laughs> you know, And it was that kind of belief in you that it happens because you tend to freeze up. I mean, it's, it's a big responsibility. Yeah, I've heard said about her. She's one of the most self-confident people that people have ever worked with. And because of that, I guess she has true self-confidence. Mm -hmm. She has the confidence in you to do the job as well. Yep, right. She knows why you were you're chosen. She respects her team, just like we're doing now. Everyone has a job. Each department has a head. And we all respect what we do. And if you don't lay that respect to that next person, then you're kind of breaking up some things. I'm learning a lot doing this. I may forget it tomorrow, but I'm learning a lot. <laughs> Jonathan, did you have any misgivings about creating a fictional tribe for the purposes of the show? I'm pretty sure the Wampapok aren't an actual nation. Is that right? That's racist. I'm not John Glazer. I'm not falling for it. <laughs> I'm not Jeremy Jam, man. Uh, uh, you know, Avatar, that's a made-up native tribe. It's not so much about representation. I mean, this is a personal feeling. It's not so much about representation as it is about misrepresentation. So I think it was a safe call. I still approached it with open heart respect, as if I were speaking for a group of people that were suffering and still suffering just because Native people have casinos. That doesn't mean that our fight is even a tip over yet. So there is a reality to that. And I'll tell you a quick story, even though it was a fictional tribe. The scene where I've got the doobie-doobie-doo and I'm doing the little stuff, nice, uh, I guess, prop assistant, I guess he would call him, mm -hmm. comes up to me and hands me this fake shell and hands it to me and says, the prop master told me to tell you it's cookie dough mix. 
And I'm like, oh man, tell him thank you so very much. And the young man's like, okay. Well, what he'd given me for this little mock blessing ceremony was the furthest from what we would actually use in reality. In reality, you know, sage, sweet grass, there's different things that we burn in, in essence of respect. And these things like a Bible, you don't use a Bible on stage. You don't use these items when doing a mock type of, mm. of ceremony. So this man had the forethought to hand me cookie dough and what ultimate respect that I didn't have to go say, hey, man, I can't use this because then he would say, well, you have to use it because it's what I envisioned. And then you have to go to the director. It's a loop of people that you have to go through to get a change from a department head. I've learned that. So instead, that one person knew he had the respect enough to know, you know what, let's give this cat something that's the furthest away from what he could use. So mock tribe, but not mock disrespect, full respect. And I recall hearing, I think it was from the American Indian Comic Con. Is that the name of the event? It's Indigenous Comic Con, yes, up in Albuquerque. Yeah, that you were talking about the experience in trying to educate the media establishment of how to deal with indigenous peoples, that there's been a lot of, they're always complaining about something in terms of trying to get straight on this. Do you feel like this is going in a good direction? You deal with what they, everyone will call artistic license, but there is a respect that needs to be followed. Are things going in the right direction? No. It's surprising given how sort of otherwise woke is a dominant thing in the culture, but it seems in terms of understanding, I mean, you've got multiple shows by black creators with black protagonists getting those stories out there. I've seen, like, I just found a little short yesterday as part of this movie, Minutes, the most important minutes of somebody's life. The concluding one in that was about a indigenous comedian going up for his first time at an open mic off the reservation, that he'd been a comedian on the reservation, and he completely bombs. And he's telling these pretty bleak jokes about how many people in his family have died of alcoholism and just really reflecting the plight that has been gone through. But then he leaves the place and he's like, I think I'm a comedian. Like he, he, this has gone so well, but that seems like a pretty exceptional example of a story sort of giving voice to that point of view. I said, are things getting better? I said, no, for the reason that they're not. But when they're not doing right, you have people that stand up. For example, again, for things to be getting better, it would mean the mistake is not being made anymore. Clarify what I said. Those mistakes are still being made. The time in which it takes to correct some of these mistakes have shortened. Being, for example, in this show, there was an S word that were referring to Sitting Bull as Chief Sitting Bull, when actually he wasn't a chief. He was a Wishasha Wakong. He was a medicine man. He was a leader. Phrases like that, keep calling someone chief. You'll be surprised at people that will call me chief. I'll be in a bar and someone says, hey, chief, let me get you a drink. Let me get you a beer. Ah, I'm a chief. I'll take a beer and a shot because chief drinks too. That kind of bullshit because you can't slap the SOB across the face because then you're in trouble. But taking it in the context of call someone a chief when you know they're a chief, but not just out of slang or, oh, I'm showing you respect when there isn't. I had a guy call me champion. Hey, you're champion. I was like, you know, I like that because we all should be champions of who we are. It's not getting better, but when it's not better, it's quickly fixed. I mean, you have people that their job now is to be a native consultant. You have outlets now to go. You know, a lot of times people will just go on the internet and, and say, well, I've done research. But again, a lot of the research that's out there is not written for us. It's written 
about us. Mm-hmm. So it's important that, again, if you're going to do something that's native involved, find a consultant. You know, you'll find somebody out there, you know, that won't charge you tons of money, but they will try to make something work for you and out of respect. The first time I had any experience like this that really woke me up to not just my own privilege, but just understanding some nuance about people who are other than me was I did a show called Tribes, which is about a deaf man who meets this girl who's going deaf, who starts to teach him sign and brings him into the deaf community. And I made some wonderful friends doing that from the deaf community. And they were so careful about everything that they chose to do and say. And I think it made me a better actor in a lot of ways. In one way, I am quieter in rehearsals than I have ever been before since doing that show. Because every single thing has to be interpreted. Now, if we thought of that with every other kind of minority, through that same thing is like, just think about it. Like, what are you saying? Why are you saying it? Is it important? Do you just need to listen right now? And with the deaf community, it was especially obvious because everything you said had to be interpreted by somebody else. So it had to go through two people to get anything said. So it takes away a lot of the chaff from a conversation because you want to be respectful of that interpreter. But also on top of that, they are very respectful to check with their elders as well and see if it's okay. Like before somebody teaches me something, if they're a person who speaks English and can hear, they're a hearing person, they're not just going to teach me sign language. They have to run everything by somebody who is an elder of theirs and make sure that everything's okay because they themselves are not deaf. I'm whittling it down for you in really basic terms, but that was something that I kind of learned was like, yeah, out of respect, don't just assume that you know and don't assume that you can read up on something and know, but go to the source, you know, go to somebody who actually knows. And I think that's one reason why it's really important to have people like Jonathan in this rehearsal space in this show, and also in film and TV, because he's reaching so many different types of people. And it's not just me. It's the people that I go to. I go to Dave Ortiz, Central Texas AIM chapter leader. I I go to him, and I try to clear things. I mean, I haven't always done the right thing. You know, sometimes I allow people's negativity and words bring me to a place that I'm not supposed to be. You learn from that, and you continue on, and I apologize to not only myself, but to my creator for times of being weak. But in times of being weak... We also gain strength. You had said in regards to me saying, yes, they're like, oh, we don't want to work with this Indian guy. He's this, or we don't want to work with the Indians because they're this or that. And they always want us to do things correctly. The one thing I can say is that we are worth it. When I say we as a human beings are worth giving what we can to make something real, whether you're a woman, whether you're Scottish or whatever, there's an essence of reality to us. And we are all worth listening to. And if you continue listening, sometimes we won't have to repeat ourselves. So again, do we bitch and complain as a Native person about certain issues? Yes, we do. All I can say is that we are worth it. And we as human beings are worth being listened to. That's great, Jonathan. You mentioned the Scottish. and I'm glad you did because you led this off talking about these people who didn't get to wear pants. All these Scots who are allowed to wear pants are constantly fighting to just wear their damn kilts all the time. And it's just because they don't have to wear underwear. It's all it is. I'm part of that fight, man. I mean, I didn't, you know, I'll wear a kilt right on, man. (laughs) They call me the breeze. I know there's a recurrent problem of when you're having a Scottish character of casting an indigenous person to do that character instead of actually getting from someone from Scotland. You just have to let the him out in the kilt. (laughs) Oh, should we wrap this up or are there any 
other topics? We I think so, <laughs> yeah. The better. I think- it's, getting, it's getting blue. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be here again tomorrow night. <laughs> We've got pants. P-A-N-T-S. Well, thanks so, so much for joining us, Jonathan. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. If there's one thing that you wanted to share with listeners about your culture, and I know you have many cultures, so whatever that is to you, that would help us understand or know, or is there is there one thing that, like a burning thing that you always wish you could tell people so they would understand who you are and what you're about? It's no longer about us. It's about we, because we are all on this Turtle Island together. Elders knew it's nothing has happened to the indigenous people that wasn't already foresawn or something that wasn't already prophesized. The reason why great leaders said, we'll fight no more forever. We are stuck on Turtle Island together. And I think the more we unite and understand each other, not agree with each other, but kind of understand, I think Turtle Island will continue swimming around in this beautiful space of ours. And we as people will be happier. Thank you. All right. Peace out. Peace. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network. Please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com. And it's also presented by openculture.com. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.